now, it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And in studio, live, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? Enjoying the cool weather. It's misting this morning. I have to say that the Pacific Northwest will see more. We're seeing signs of why we're going to get more and more climate refugees why we live in a beautiful and wonderful place, why we should be so grateful that our July wasn't as hot as last year's July. We, who knows what August will bring, but so far this week doesn't look to be too hot. This is a refuge for people, who, for France, who is dealing with 108 degrees. You know, this is, feels and, like paradise. And, and we've got middle 60s this morning. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. Sometimes we talk about the weather. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. I don't know how important the weather is. Climate's pretty important. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have two shout-outs. First, I want a shout-out for the debaters from the Eastern New York Correctional Institution. That's a prison. It's a high-maximum security prison. They have debaters there, some debaters who are long-term felons, and they whooped Harvard. They took your school on and beat them, which I think is just absolutely wonderful. And then I want to shout out for Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich is the coach of the San Antonio Spurs and the National Basketball Association, but he is coaching this year's World Basketball Championship team. And I'm shouting out because of the way he has behaved, the way he comports himself. So many major stars have bugged out, said no, they don't want to. They don't want to risk getting hurt. Or they don't want to play on the World Cup. So he's still going to have players. But I am reminded they will have players. They'll have some players. players. Uh, and his reaction was, "Hey, listen, we're going to be just fine. We'll do and and." He really humble and, and expressed just an honor to represent the country. And I'm reminded of a story that a Idaho minister told me years ago. He told about a man who well, didn't have a whole lot of money, and so he bought horses, and he bought four horses that were pretty much just looked like old nags. And he's going down the street, and one of his neighbors said, said Tony, are you going to try to plow with those horses? And he said, I will plow with the horses that I have. And that's what Greg Popovich is going to do, and I predict he's going to win. The I am looking to see what the team will end up being. There is still a chance that four Boston Celtics uh, will make the team. And I have to say, I'd kind of it would give a storyline. It'd be a little bit fun. Dad, I want to start with Puerto Rico. Okay, but before we talk about Puerto oh, Rico, I, I, just want, I just want to acknowledge the passing of Toni Morrison. Uh, uh, absolutely marvelous female black writer who who was proud of her race and won awards for her for her writing and she will be missed okay go for it let's talk about puerto rico where they have a governor they have a third one <laughs> yes they do the third governor in a week <laughs> and and, and, was, uh, the, uh, and she said she didn't want the job <laughs> which is why she's the third one and not the second one Right. That apparently the so I'll give the I'll give the news. Puerto Rico Supreme Court overturned former acting Secretary of State uh, Pedro Perlusi's status as governor on Wednesday, and Wanda Vasquez, the Justice Secretary, 
was sworn in on Wednesday as the third governor in less than a week. She's Puerto Rico's second female governor, the territory's second unelected governor in 70 years. Uh, And that, do you understand, I think I do understand the line of succession, how this happened. I think I understand it. Do you want me to give a try? Yeah, why don't you give a try? Well, as I understand it, under the Constitution of Puerto Rico, if the governor leaves office before his or her term expires, the Secretary of State automatically becomes the governor, the Secretary of State being an elected office. But the office of Secretary of State just happened to be vacant because the Secretary of State had departed before the governor did, and and the governor hadn't got around to appointing a successor. And so after the governor announced he was going to retire, uh, the next person in line would be Ms. Vasquez, and she said she didn't want the job. So the governor appointed a secretary of state, and that secretary of state uh, was therefore sworn in as governor. The, the Senate of Puerto Rico failed, however, to ratify his appointment, and so it went to the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico, and they said, no, the, the uh, accession of an appointed governor under these circumstances, uh, rather an appointed secretary of state under these circumstances, the governor is unconstitutional. So we have to give another shot at Ms. Vasquez. And she decided, okay, I guess I'll take the job after all. So Pierre Luisi, and I'm, I, I got, I, th- I said Vasquez, I think it probably is just Vasquez and Pierre Luisi. I can't find an internet pronunciation of it, but I'm going to go with Pierre Luisi. Uh, who was very, very briefly the governor. But, Dad, here is my... Very briefly indeed. But here is my take. And I don't even know if you count. Do you get the picture? You know how you walk into, like, an old union hall or you walk into the city hall and you see the hall that has the former, you know, it starts with black and white and then usually turns to color. The pictures who are like the head of the Benevolent Protective Order of Elks Uh, over the years. About the 40s, we start to get color, except sometimes they don't do color, so they they just want to keep keep consistency, keep going. And and I and I do you get the picture, right? If you were if if you were if the Supreme Court says you were not supposed to be in it, but you did you did get sworn in. Uh, do you get the picture? Yeah, because you just see the picture, Governor from August second to August sixth, twenty nineteen. The uh, uh, my it wouldn't have been it wouldn't it wouldn't have been very long. It reminds me. It's sort of like, I mean, William Henry Harrison. William Henry, he, he got the picture, okay? Like, he gets to be in all... When I go to the Thai restaurant across the street, he's on the composite, right? It's, it's like all white dudes plus Obama, and, and William Henry Harrison got it, and he was president for, I believe, exactly one month. And it was, it was March 4th to April 4th. Is our, it, it, but, but he did not leave in shame. He left, no, he, he, he died. Left, he left to go to glory. Right. He, uh, he, depending he, on your, hopefully, hopefully depending eternal on salvation. Beliefs. Right. And so that was that was our shortest serving president. So anyway, as, I don't know. As if I understand the... it, he he died because he wanted to show how brave he was, and so he made his inaugural speech uh, without wearing an overcoat and got the. I but you know I, 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 <laughs> this is the whole idea though. See, I question this story. Like it might it might very well be that it weakened his immune system. All right, and that and but. The cold doesn't give you the cold, right? Anymore that climate change dictates the weather. It's sort of like, oh, he was outside without overcoat. Therefore, he got sick. I mean, I guess sort of maybe, but I, I you know, 
I question a little bit. But that here is the more relevant take, other than my reference to William Henry Harrison. Uh, the at, back in the 1840s, prior to the Civil War, and that of course was back when the inauguration took place in March, and so he thought he could get away with it. Now it's in January, and nobody pretends that it is a reminder. And I don't remember if I said this. I hope I said it, but I certainly thought it when the Puerto Rico protests were happening. And I think many around the world were inspired by the uh, Puerto Rico protests, as we are inspired by the Hong Kong protests, the idea that the people can be in charge, that people can resist, that people can rise up, that people can impact and can be the government. But that the toppling of a regime, whether it's in Puerto Rico or whether it's the Arab Spring, the toppling of the regime is not the end of the work. And it might not be the hardest part of the work. That the hardest part of the work might be, in fact, not the destroying, but the building. might not be just the American Revolution. It might, in fact, be the Articles of Confederation and then also building a constitution and then, in fact, having your first president who doesn't stay an elected king for the rest of his life and setting a precedent for two terms. And, and that act, that set of actions, that mostly happening with words and in quiet and in meetings and building brick by brick is harder, I think than the toppling of a corrupt set of bricks, as important as toppling a corrupt set of bricks can be. Yes. And when you think about George Washington, a good case can be made that the two greatest things he did as president were one, the one you just mentioned, that he said two terms are enough, <clears throat> because had he not said that, he would, could have been reelected until he, until he died, I'm sure. And the other was... Which would have created a whole different habit, right? Then, and, and it wouldn't have been John Adams, but imagine the next person. Still might have been Thomas Jefferson, who might have lived long enough. Uh, and, and Yeah, Thomas Jefferson lived, I think, till 2024. He could have been president for a long time. Well, they, they died, but they died. He and John Adams died the same day. So who, who knows who would have been the second president? But you could imagine the second president then being president well, for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then, and then just what happened, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wouldn't be an outlier. They would just yeah. always be like that. Actually, actually Washington died not too long after he retired. And so I, I think he would not have finished a third term, if I remember correctly. Well, maybe he got bored. The, that's possible. Maybe he was or, president. Or the other maybe we killed him, Dad. Maybe the fact that he wasn't, <laughs> maybe the fact that he wasn't president lost purpose in life, and he said, I'm, I'm done. But I'm the, the other great thing that he did, when, when he became president, the question was, what was the president going to be called? What would be addressed as? Your Highness, Your Excellency? And he said, I will be called Mr. And so it wasn't Your Excellency, it wasn't Your Highness, it wasn't Your Grand Poobah, it was Mr. President. I am rooting for new, uh, new governor of Puerto Rico, Wanda Vasquez. I'm also rooting for the United States to start having a federal government that interacts more justly with uh, Puerto Rico. And Dad, 680 uh, immigrant workers arrested in Mississippi ICE raids yesterday. You heard about this? Yeah, I did hear about it. And it, it is so ironic, so ironic, because the big the big thing that DDT and the immigrant protesters talk about is is these people coming in to commit crimes. And what we have is we have, we have them taking jobs that they take because white supremacist natives don't want the jobs. 
and so we're going to arrest them. They, if they were looking for, if they're trying to root out MS-13, apparently where they thought MS-13 was hiding was in seven food processing plants in oh. Mississippi. This was, this is where, this, this was the center of, of international uh, southern border terror, apparently, was food processing plants in Mississippi. ICE acting director Matthew Alban said these could be the largest workplace raids ICE has had in more than a decade, uh, likely the biggest for any single state. Uh, took more than 600 ICE agents uh, to do it. So about one ICE agent for every arrest. So when you, if you're going to go after MS-13 in the food processing plants, okay, you have, I don't know what the ratio is for food processing worker to food processed, but the ratio of ICE agents to immigrants being detained is about one-to-one. Yep. We should talk maybe a little bit about the murders. And all of the stuff <laughs> that, that, you've that is such a murders. bummer sentence. It's like it's, now it's time to talk about the murders. It's not funny. I know <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. And where we are in the country right now is is horrible and atrocious. But the thing that I want to talk about is there's a, there's a story in this morning's Guardian which is just really chilling. Ten years ago, in March of just two months after President Obama was sworn in, the Department of Homeland Security sent out a memo prepared by its task force on terrorism and sent a memo that was to be a private memo to law enforcement agencies all over the country warning that there was likely to be an uptick in right-wing extremism and violence coming from right-wing extremists, particularly warning against their words, lone wolves and small cells, close quote, because a black president had been elected. And the memo that went to law enforcement got leaked, and the right-wing, the Republican Party, the the, uh, right-wing apologists, all started to scream what a horrible thing this is to suggest that we should be concerned not with Islamic foreign terrorism, but local terrorism. The memo was withdrawn, an apology was written, and the author of it, Daryl Johnson, who was leading a small team whose job it was to analyze for the Department of Homeland Security, was pushed out, was ultimately pushed out of office. And 10 years later, we are reaping the whirlwind that those right-wing apologists sowed back then. And it is absolutely disgraceful. The uh, tracking back, the Brennan Center's tracking back of Law Review articles that prior to 1959 uh, did, in fact, demonstrate that there were no there were no law review articles that applied a applied the Second Amendment to an individually held right. That it was so clearly, as you and I discussed last night uh, over dinner, that uh, and we don't have dinner all the time, but we had dinner last night. And it was very yummy, and I appreciate it. Uh, that the that there was no individually held right in the Second Amendment, which makes so much sense, uh, given that the. Uh, all the amendments were meant to apply to the states. And of any of the amendments, and, and what occurred to me last night, 
was the difference. You, know, you should make your case again about why you why you could imagine some amendments having been. You know, maybe Madison thought maybe that amendment would end up having. Oh, as as I as I said last night, if Madison had been asked, can you imagine the First Amendment, which gives freedom of speech and freedom of religion, freedom of assembly? Can you imagine that someday being declared to apply to the states? Because remember, the apply to individuals. You know, Apply, to, uh, apply both to the states yeah. and to individuals. Well, but the, the, the big key was the first 10 amendments were seen as restrictions on the power of the federal government. They were not, let me underline, not seen at that time as restrictions upon what any state could do. And if you'd have Madison, might the Supreme Court someday say the First Amendment applies to the state? Yes. How about the Fifth Amendment? Yeah, probably. How about the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, very likely. But the Second Amendment? He would have simply laughed. The whole point of the Second Amendment was to restrict the right of the federal government to overturn, to attack the power and the rights of the states. And the idea that that would have been applied to the state would be just a joke. And I'm just waiting for the first state to take that on today and to pass good gun legislation, which would, in, in, a, in a state where that would not contradict the state constitution, and then let the NRA take that up to the Supreme Court and see what the Supreme Court is prepared to say about what the framers really intended with the Second Amendment. I, I fear we know what this Supreme Court would say. I'm afraid they would, the hypocrites. And the, but, the, but the interesting piece here is not only the back and forth of people are dying, let's keep people from dying, no, no, I want to be able to own an AR-15 or an arsenal of AR-15s, but the, uh, but the genesis of this, the, how the law changed, and this is why I find Waldman's piece, it's actually an older piece, but being shared around now, that uh, the title of the piece, if people want to read it, is BrennanCenter.org, which is a democracy, uh, democracy think tank and center uh, at, was it NYU, I think. Uh, and Michael Waldman wrote the article, the title of it being how the, NRA, how the NRA rewrote the Second Amendment. And going back and looking at, I mean, you had, you had uh, uh, Justice Berger, you had uh, uh, who was who was Republican appointee? The person who started transforming the court from the uh, the one period essentially in the 20th century where there was a where there was a liberal Supreme Court, uh, even though you know, Justice Warren also uh, uh, also appointed by or also a Republican himself, uh, Republican governor of California previously. But anyway, Berger started transforming the court. But Berger, when asked, said, well, it was a ridiculous. Uh, the idea of the Second Amendment transferred an individual liberty to an individual person was a ridiculous notion. And it wasn't until 1959, it wasn't until the dawn of the NRA, it wasn't until they started paying people to write articles to start suggesting that the latter portion, that the latter clause of the Second Amendment should, in fact, indicate an individual right that started, and then also in the early 1970s, the formation of the Federalist Society, the creation that, that then started moving that idea not only through law review articles, but also through some sectors of legal education until finally they end up, it ends up in the Heller decision that applies that right, that transforms, that transforms American Jewish jurisprudence 
and the point you made last night, it, it, it helped, like reminded me of a piece or, or, or made me think of a piece that makes it so very obvious. When you're making that case, right? So you remember, you got these, you got these amendments, which were explicitly limitations on what the federal government could do to limit state power. Okay, it wasn't about it wasn't a contract that was being signed between every individual voter in, in the new United States. It was a contract being signed between the people who led these roughly independent little little nation states to be able to make a deal to have one big nation. And it's important to remember that the word state in 1787 meant country. It meant an independent nation. It did not mean subdivision. It did not mean county. And one of the most important things to happen individual liberty in the country was, in fact, the application of those individual liberties towards individual people. But here's the thing. If you're going to think that it happens one by one, there's a, there is a decision about whether an amendment, whether a liberty is, in fact, an individual liberty or was part of this deal that was made between states and the federal government, you might, in fact, look at the text. And I know I'm going a little bit deep here, but I'm trying to apply my brain rather than just my emotions because my emotions just make me weep or make me anger or, 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 or make me retreat to inappropriate laughter. But if you look at the text, okay, remember the first words of the Second Amendment is a, well, is a well-regulated militia. That is the first words. Now, if the First Amendment said a right to speech, and then it said a well-regulated press, then you might say, okay, well, now, but the First Amendment doesn't say that. It doesn't say a well-regulated press. It just says freedom of the press. It says freedom of speech. It says prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It says make no law respecting the establishment of religion. It doesn't say a well-regulated religion. It doesn't say a religion subject to legitimate state authority. It just says, will not establish religion, will not prohibit the free exercise thereof, will not abridge the freedom of speech. It will, and it says you get to petition the government for redress of grievances. It doesn't say the government still maintains powers. It makes it so obvious when you compare it with the Second Amendment, which doesn't have an embedded clause. It's the first words, a well-regulated militia. I'm for a group, and, and a the Second militia, Amendment group that the, is for the, a, sec, a well-regulated militia. And the and, militia, of course, is a function of the state. Exactly. The militia was clearly something that was only the, the federal government could have armies. It would not have militias. The states had militias. Well, so uh, what's going to happen now, Pop? We're starting to see, like Lindsey Graham is suggesting, well, maybe we can push red flag laws. I think that was also what Ivanka Trump said, because they're recognizing with, with the Gilroy murders, and yeah, we say murders, not just shootings. You can do shootings in a video game. Uh, and with the mass murders in, that, that happened within a 24-hour period, uh, not in Toledo, the, uh, that, that it is, it, it I, I at least woke me up again. Right. I mean, like I was starting I, I started ran, run out of words about what we were supposed to say about this stuff. When we have yet another mass murder with with uh, with an AR-15 or an AK-47. Uh, but this is, I think, awoken, awakened uh, the country again. And I think there is some pressure on Republicans to do something. Uh, so far, the something is maybe something at red flag laws. Do you, do you want to explain what a red flag law well, is? A red flag law is that first, of course, a red flag law depends upon people voluntarily reporting something that they see that they think produces a danger. And so if somebody reports a danger, then there can be some sort of judicial proceeding which results in taking that person's 
weapons away and putting that person on a list saying that he or she cannot buy a weapon, that, of course, becomes pretty meaningless as long as that person can go to a gun show somewhere in the country and buy a gun without having to fill out an application, without having a background check of any kind. So the background check is is the critical thing that needs to happen so that before somebody obtains a weapon, you have a look. And I think that we really, at some point, have to recognize that that licensing guns ought to be okay. And when you say licensing guns, the NRA screams, oh, whoa, horrible, horrible. But nobody screams about licensing automobile driving privileges. They all recognize that an automobile is potentially a dangerous instrument, and therefore it makes sense to license. And you're not going to deprive people of rights. And the far right, of course, says, well, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have a right to drive. I think there is in the Constitution embedded somewhere in the Constitution pretty well a right to travel. And, uh, <laughs> but, but the analogy is none, nonetheless the same. So the red flag law is, is a good idea because it encourages people who see somebody building a big arsenal and getting a whole lot of ammunition. But that's, but that's, not, the, but that's not the thing that red flag laws typically but but no, it is not. It, it's just about whether they've exhibited signs right. of of mental illness or right. or right. self harm, and it's turned out to have some impact, some helpfulness with uh, with pe- with impacting suicide, with reducing suicides. But so few of the mass gun murderers uh, in the past have exhibited signs of mental illness prior. They've exhibited signs of white supremacy. They've exhibited signs of violence. They've exhibited signs of having a predilection to want to have and use firearms. Yep. But but in and terms for, of uh, clinical uh, definitions of mental illness, not so much. Lots of evidence of hate. The uh, But the reason I offer the, the background thing, the reason I wanted to cover that Brennan Center thing is so much of the argument, I, in, in, in the common argument, in the water cooler argument, maybe the Twitter argument, is people saying, oh, well, it was one thing to have a right and keep and bear arms when it was muskets. But now their AR-15s is a different thing. What I'm suggesting is a different, it, it's a different argument altogether. You didn't have a... The, the, the right that was embedded in the Constitution was to have a well-regulated militia that included that gun. And the question now is, how should we well-regulate that militia? What should that right to keep and bear arms as applied to the state mean? It, it, it did not suggest an absolute individual right that you got to carry the best firearm that was available in the country, whether it was a musket or an AR-15. So the, the musket argument, you know, is relevant to put things in context, but we can go even deeper. You can be a textualist. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a judicial activist. In fact, it is the judicial activists. It is the right-wing judicial activists who transformed this, funded by the NRA. We can move on if you want. The, but ultimately, I mean... Let us remember a couple other key facts that uh, that gun violence, that gun murders went down. I think the number was 43 percent after the uh, assault weapons ban, after they said weapons like AK-47s, weapons like Uzis, weapons like AR-15s, which is the most popular now. Kalashnikovs. Uh, are, are no longer. Kalashnikov is the same as the AK-47, right? Yeah. Uh, the, that those are no longer uh, allowed to be sold. And the and that saw and led to a significant decline in mass gun murders. And after the after the Republican Congress allowed that to lapse, 
after in the uh, Bush administration when they said, oh, no, that that 10-year period of less, of fewer gun murders, let that last. We saw a 230% increase in mass gun violence. This stuff is hard, but it's not complicated. And that, it, is simp- it is not easy, but some of it is simple. Yeah, that reminds me, I, I caught Tucker Carlson. That guy is such a, an incredible liar. It just is scary. And, and realizing that the people out there who get their information from Fox, quote, news, close quote, and are believing people like Tucker Carlson, he showed a clip of Vice President Biden talking about the need for a law to ban those weapons. And he was asked, well, what are you going to do about people who already have them? And he said, well, we're going to first want to rely on voluntary giving them up, and then then we'll have to look at possibly purchasing them. And Tucker Carlson then says, isn't this horrible? He is going to force people to give up property without compensation. Just completely misstating what the vice president said. Just And, and that's, that's what 35 or 40 percent of the people of this country are getting day in and day out. We got a text. Why weren't the owners of food processing plants arrested for hiring some uh, of them were. undocumented workers? Some of them were, but also understand where the emphasis is. That that if I think one of the biggest differences between a a, a, a labor friendly uh, Democratic presidency and a corporate friendly Republican presidency, those are not exactly you know those are not exactly perfect descriptions, but I mean those descriptions on purpose. A labor friendly Democratic uh, presidency would almost certainly still, not almost certainly, would certainly still have penalties for illegal immigration. There would be a greater focus on those who hire, on those who may who build shareholder wealth out of the practice. Especially, especially those who underpay their employees and do it because they can hire people who are afraid to complain about their working conditions. And and as distinct from trying merely to gin up uh, racial resentment. You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXY Portland, KQAC, HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, it's going to be this week in charts. And on this week in charts, we're going to learn a little bit about how the supporters of one presidential candidate might interact with the supporters of another presidential candidate in the Democratic primary, which is, of course, happening right now. You're listening to X-Ray. Radio is yours. And coming up next, This Week in Charts. Welcome back, folks. This is my dad. I'm Jefferson Smith here with my dad. And this week in charts, one of the things I like most about the radio is the chance to go over charts. I find, I find charts a really useful radio tool. And a very interesting chart that I'll put up close to the microphone uh, offered by the Washington Post was how multi-donors divvied their funds. Now, Dad, I sent you this chart, but that doesn't necessarily mean you were able to pour over it prior. Did you have a chance of looking at this chart? Yes, I had a chance. It is very interesting. So it should. And, and I'm really looking forward to when we have video capabilities, so people really do get to see the charts. That will be the end of this week in charts. That then then we will have this week in silent movies as soon as there is video capability. Now, it, it showed it took the five highest polling candidates: Biden, Buttigieg, Harris, Sanders, and Warren. Not in that order of polling, of course, and showed how donors to one did or did not donate to another. 
right? So it showed if like if you're a, if you're a Harris supporter, were you more likely to support someone else? If you're a Warren supporter, who else did you give your money to? If you're if you know if you're a Bernie Sanders donor, the collection of Bernie Sanders donors was it five percent of them gave to some other candidate, and who did they, and who did they give to? Pop, you 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 do not have the benefit of look, having the. Tr- it is not on your clipboard. It is on my laptop. It's one. I that's one vote from that is one point for me in the laptop versus clipboard war. But setting that aside, that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a, a separate topic. I'm going to go that down that luddite tangent once again. But anything from when I sent you the chart that struck you? Well, there are there are folks who are supporting more than one candidate who generally agrees with those voters, and it's a rather remarkable number. The the, the biggest takeaways. So the candidates who had the largest, uh, the candidates had the largest overlap were, in fact, uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the candidate who had the least overlap with anyone, he had the, this candidate had the most overlap with Warren uh, among the candidates. But the candidate who didn't, uh, with that exception, didn't really look, didn't have more than, you know, like 6% overlap with anybody was, in fact, Bernie Sanders. That the, uh, that, that, Candidates, the supporters of candidates other than Bernie Sanders uh, didn't give much to Bernie Sanders and more uh, with with the exception of Warren and candidates and, and excuse me, contributors, small contributors who gave to Bernie Sanders gave to uh, nobody gave a large percentage to anyone. Looks like about uh, looks like about eight uh, percent of them also gave to Warren. But Sanders had by far the least overlap. Uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren had the most overlap. Most people uh, bullet voting for uh, Bernie Sanders. I found that I found that somewhat interesting. Uh, one of the things that we were speculating last night, and others are speculating, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are being very, very good to each other, and I think each one of them thinks that sooner or later the other one is going to drop out, and all of his or her votes will. It's a it's a it's very true. interesting dynamic, and we, we I do want to make sure we get to state and local today. The uh, uh, and and so I, I might have to give the brief version of this, but I want to make uh, I want to go after the candidate I like best, or I'm going to make the counter argument to the candidate I like best, and the uh, and I will say the candidate I like best is the one that has the most overlap. Like the e- even for uh, for Buttigieg. I found it interesting that uh, that Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren had uh, had significant overlap. Lots of people who like both, uh, and and interestingly, because one would not, if one thought that politics existed on a spectrum, you would not locate them in the same place on the on the spectrum. I think it's pretty simple. They're both they're probably the two smartest candidates. That's, that's what they both have the most brains. That really stands out. And the <laughs> and they answer questions the best, and they seem yep. to have the most coherent uh, yep. governing philosophy, uh, and. Uh, the uh, so, so so what I find, but here's here's me going after Elizabeth Warren. Uh, here's the counter argument to Elizabeth Warren. And it actually is. And I'm borrowing significantly from Matt Iglesias's piece in Vox, not Fox, but Vox, where he says that well, the V is in Victor, that people are misunderstanding the lesson of Donald Trump. So and the, and one, the way you can interpret the lesson of Donald Trump is, oh, look, Donald Trump ran as a crazy fire-haired right-winger, and he ran against the moderate, more moderate-seeming Hillary Clinton. And this goes to show you, and it shows to go you, 
that it doesn't matter whether you're liberal or the moderate in the general election. What matters is if you can build passion among your supporters, if you can seem authentic to those supporters and beyond, if you can motivate people to, in fact, get out there and activate and vote and tweet, if you can build energy, then that can win. And this moderation stuff, that was a Clintonian era long past. And Iglesias' point is, well, that's not how Trump ran. That Trump ran as a rhetorical right-winger. He recognized that the essence of the modern right wing is essentially being jerky to lefties, is essentially right. just hating, it's, it's hating really, liberals. It's really expressing hate and, and dealing and being angry. It's just That's it, what it's all about. It's like, it's like trolling liberals is essentially the essence of the thing. And as long as you do that, then on Fox and on Breitbart and on Drudge Report and on what started it all was the started so much of it was right wing talk radio. Then, then those folks are with you because you're speaking their language. If you just, if you just own the libs. Yep. If you sound like Rush Limbaugh, <coughs> you must be one of ours. Then you're cool. But remember his policy positions. His policy, he, he said he was going to protect Social Security. He said he was going to protect Medicare and Medicaid. He said he was going to do something about campaign finance reform. He said he was going to go after Wall Street. He said he was going to increase taxes <laughs> oh. on hedge funds and on the wealthy in America. Yeah. And he said, and he adopted a trade policy that is essentially the building trades trade policy. He essentially said, yeah, we want to we want to impose tariffs again, right? This was not this was not Ayn Rand's policy agenda. This was not Paul Ryan's policy agenda. This was not George Will's policy agenda. This was not Ronald Reagan's policy agenda. On policy, the dude ran as a moderate. And the uh, and I don't think there is I don't think it's fair to say, well, there should just be a flip and somebody should you know, sound like a lefty, but then run as a moderate. That's not that I don't think is the point. But I do think it is the point that I think Elizabeth Warren is getting caught in a little bit that she she is she might be savvy enough. My point is not to make a conclusion, but make the counter argument in part just to be less biased. In part, just to say, hey, listen, the, the most important thing is that we protect democracy. And any candidate who will protect and rebuild democracy is worthy of being president in my book. But, the, but for Elizabeth Warren, she doesn't want there to be any space between her and Bernie Sanders. As you pointed out, they, are, they, they both think the other one, they both seem to think the other one's going to drop out. They'll get the supporters. If you add their two supporters together, their two sets of supporters together, it's more than Biden and then what it can be president. But the challenge is it means that when it comes to policy, she says she's a capitalist. When it comes to policy choices, she'll go wherever Bernie goes. And then the question I have is, how do those things stand up in the federal election? I hear, and here's my point. My point is not an argument for moderation, but I offer it to, to its greatest extent. But, and now I'm borrowing from, from Ezra Klein, the, uh, who made the point that if what you really wanted to do was have uh, massive progressive policy change in the United States of America, what you'd want is a president that won by a large margin. You'd want a, a president who won by a large margin so that you could win congressional seats and you could, so you could win state legislative seats. When the Great Society happened, it wasn't because uh, Lyndon Johnson was the most liberal Democrat. He was not. It was because he beat Barry Goldwater like a drum. And Barry Goldwater seemed dangerous, and he did the Daisy uh, ad and made everybody afraid that Barry Goldwater was going to end up causing nuclear holocaust and won by the largest margin in modern American political history. And that helped build coattails in Congress that all of a sudden you could go to Congress and say, I want to pass this law, and you had a chance to get it passed. That you could win in state legislatures and have a chance to get that stuff passed. So it is so so much of the activist energy 
so much of the activist energy is focused on the presidency. And so my real point is not a point to suggest that presidential candidates moderate. My bigger point is don't think that that's the biggest thing that matters. The bigger thing that will matter is if there is a governing apparatus well beyond the presidency that is in favor of democracy, that protects basic civil rights, that is worried, that believes climate change exists and is willing to do something about it, that recognizes that we need a middle class, that it's been eroding, we need to rebuild the middle class, that that governing consensus in the country will be more important than where a presidential candidate lands on a spectrum. Dad, your turn. Let's do state, state and local after that. We can also go through some headlines if you want. Well, let's just go through some international headlines really quickly. Brexit. The Guardian today reports that the Johnson administration, the Boris Johnson administration, with a, a guy named Cummings, is putting on a reign of terror to scare members of parliament to support a, a get out of Brexit regardless of what happens. The UN has issued a report that the ability to feed ourselves is seriously at risk that because of soil erosion, and this is something I've been talking about for a long time, and I'm delighted to hear that because of a report that Wendell Johnson wrote years ago, noting that we are getting rid of topsoil 10 to 100 times faster than topsoil can replete, replace itself. And without topsoil, you don't grow crops. They also have issued another report that, that the... Uh, a quarter of the people of the world are facing serious water shortages. But, of course, the White House will tell you it's all a hoax. Deng, the disease of Deng, spelled D-E-N-G-U-E, but I assume it's pronounced Deng. I don't think it would be Dengway. 146,000 cases in the Philippines have been reported. A lot of people are dying, but 146,000 New York Times reports that there is a housing crisis in Ireland, that homeland, homelessness is way up, home ownership is way down. And then last headline, China devaluating their currency. Looks like they are weaponizing the renminbi. House Democrats have formally filed a lawsuit to force Don McGahn to testify. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler filed a lawsuit on Wednesday to enforce a subpoena so that White House counsel Don McGahn would testify in the committee's investigation of Donald Trump's potential obstruction of justice. McGahn, a key witness in former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, who sat for more than 30 hours of interviews, has been blocked by the White House from complying with the subpoena. The lawsuit files a court, follows a court filing last month seeking the release of grand jury materials. He has declined, however, to label investigation a formal impeachment inquiry. Nadler has said that court decisions on these two lawsuits will probably reach by the end of October. And this well, this challenges this concept of absolute immunity, which the White House is claiming. Boy, I, I know I know the president's Supreme Court majority is pretty awful, but I just can't imagine them upholding that one. BG is saying that climate change has forced them to fight for their lives. The island nation will introduce one of the world's most ambitious legislative programs to tackle the climate crisis. They've also called the global community's decision to limit 1.5 degrees Celsius grossly irresponsible and selfish. Fiji's attorney general and minister for economy and climate change recently said, and yes, attorney general, minister for economy and climate change, 
recently said they were in a fight for our lives and our livelihoods. Fiji is planning to reduce its emissions to net zero by 2050, relocate communities at risk from the adverse effects of climate change. They hope their ambitious plans will encourage neighbors like Australia to take bolder action on climate change. And by the way, even if even if we set aside, there's two pieces of this, right? This is my commentary, brief commentary, and then we'll take a quick break and go to state and local. Uh, that even if we said, okay, who, who the heck knows how climate change happened? We know that it is happening, and we got to do something about it. And most of the stuff that you do about it, right, setting aside like ad- addressing emissions, but you still got to pay for that stuff. And then the question is, how are you going to pay for that stuff? And most of that, like, and then if you got to a green tax that way, if you got to a carbon tax that way, is still a fine way to get to it. I still think there ought to be pretty well policy consensus on some of the addressing climate change, even if people are trying to stick with Exxon scientists' conclusions that Exxon doesn't believe themselves that climate change ain't real because they believe it is real. Let's take a break right now, Dad, unless you have a very quick word. Just quick. Another way we could pay for it is to stop throwing money in the toilet toilet of of airplanes that cost $100 million more. You don't like the F-35? I do not like. You're not F-35. a fan of the F-35. I am not. Probably fun to fly. Yeah, it's be really fun to fly, amazing. But, but its ability to protect us from danger that is liable to kill you and me, or more likely to kill our grandson, heck of a lot less than what is likely with climate change. It, it, it turns out that a that an F-35 flying high overhead has is the loudest engine apparently that's ever been made. And the it's apparently loud enough that when you're in your living room and it's flying high overhead, it sounds like you're running a vacuum cleaner in your living room. That it's making suburban communities say, "Hey, wait a minute, what is this? What is this awful noise?" Well, it's the F-35. We'll be right back. You're listening to X-ray. I'm Jeff. This is news with my dad, and radio is yours. By the way, I want to say something about that voice. That that is the voice of Hee Jae Jong. Hee Jae was an intern from uh, South Korea, and is brilliant and one of the best interns. I think probably, the, yeah, one of the best interns we've ever had. And I'm actually going with her today to meet with an immigration lawyer to see about her getting a, a visa, getting a waiver to her, what is it, the uh, S-1 visa, uh, at, which allowed her to be here for three months and then I come back for two years and then try to work on an, on an H-1B visa uh, to, so that she can be in the United States longer term to, to work in purpose-driven media. And she's, she's a marvelous person. I'm going to have to raise some money to try to pay for the lawyers for that. Uh, but uh, thank you to the members of X-Ray who make that even a, a possible consideration, and thank you to the, uh, uh, and, and thank you also to our sponsors and likewise who do that. And thank you most of all to Hijay. Uh, we got a text, Dad. Did you did you say dengue fever? But you said it somewhere else, somehow else. I, I said I don't know if it was dang or dengue or dengue. I, I, it, dengue. It's dengue. Yeah, dengue oh, fever. Well, I appreciate that text. Who said it? Uh, Danny DeVito. Right. Portland City Council has okayed a $60 per unit annual landlord fee. Portland Mayor and Commissioners adopted that $60 per unit fee for landlords to help fund the City Renter Services Office, according to government analysis. The office will be stationed within the Portland Housing Bureau. It will enforce fair housing laws. It will mediate landlord-tenant disputes and maintain a registry of rental units. The registry is an initiative that officials such as the mayor say is important to inform city housing policy. Let us know how many rental units are there, and that helps us know how many more might be needed. City Council first approved the registry last year, but there was no fee attached, and landlords' compliance uh, was optional. Other West Coast cities such as Seattle, San Diego, also even Gresham, have a similar fee. Uh, However, instead of funding data collection, may also be put to use 
who are paying for the building in, for building inspections of apartments and other functions. Portland's fee will hit larger landlords differently than mom and pop operations. A 200-unit property in Seattle costs $575 per year to register. The same building would cost $12,000 a year to register in Portland. So the so there'll be meaningful fees on the really big apartment buildings. Right. During last week's and, hearing, and of course, uh, you, you know what the you know what the apartment owners will do to get the money for that sixty dollars. They'll increase their rents five dollars a month. I, 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 see, this is where I think maybe a little bit, but not all the way. This is the same argument. This is the same sort of trickle across argument that's made with any sort of tax increase. Ultimately, I don't think that's how prices are set. I think prices are set based on what the marketplace will allow prices to be set with and costs. Uh, costs of goods, costs of services, costs of government are one of the calculations to what that competitive landscape will look like because you're, all of your competitors will be, be charging the same thing. But ultimately, that that's only one of the inputs. So I don't think actually that will trigger a rent increase of five dollars a month. I could imagine it being used as an excuse to increase rents. Exactly. I, I think I think they will exactly. send emails to tenants saying, "Oh, because of these chal- you know, these things being done by government, I've got exactly. to send this rent increase." Uh, but the but I think that the thing will actually trigger. The rent increase will be what they think they can get away with charging. Sure. Uh, Dad, Portland uh, school leaders are going to ask voters to extend the tax levy for teachers in November. Cost cost the average homeowner just a little under four hundred bucks. That's the average homeowner for people who happen to have the misfortune of buying a house forty five years ago. It's not and, the misfortune. And and living in a cry, place where cry there's river. where there's been huge, huge. For people who now Inflation. live in a million-dollar house that they bought as a cheap house, the, the people who have the horror, the, the, the great misfortune. And who don't want to live in a million-dollar house. They just want to live in the house they've lived in That's for the last the argument, but nobody, years. Nobody's crying you a river, Pop. <laughs> nobody, nobody is that bummed out about the, about the older white people. dude who has a, an expensive house now. It's going to cost some of those people over $2,000 a year. The school board will ask voters to maintain the levy's current rate of $1.99 per $1,000 assessed property value. The local option tax most recently approved in 2014 will provide approximately 14% of the district's general fund in the current fiscal year, a little more than $96 million, which some might say is a little less than $100 million. That would cost the owner of a typical home in the district about $430 a year. As you said, the cash collected will go directly into the general fund, which for the current year totals $694 million, which some people might say is a little less than $700 million. Uh, so you could also take this as about one-seventh of the general fund. Chief of Staff Stephanie Soden said the operating levy, if approved, would generate even more than that, up to 114. Some might call that a little less than $115 million by the 2024-25 academic year. If the levy is to appear on the November ballot, the school board must submit the ballot title by August 15th and must submit the measure's final language on September 5th. Pop your turn. While we're talking about public schools, Portland Public Schools has hired Shanice Clark. I think you interviewed Shanice Clark when she was running for the school board. She's now been hired to run the outreach and public dialogue efforts of the school board. And she, I'm realizing as a permanent employee there every single day, she might wind up with more influence on the school system the school than member. had she been elected to the board. Might want to get her she all again. She also get paid more. Yeah, a lot more. <laughs> a rally celebrating Trump and guns is scheduled on the same day as the Eugene Pride rally. It's called the God, Guns, and Trump Rally. Planned for Saturday afternoon in front of the Lane, in the Lane County Courthouse, participants are encouraged to bring and display firearms. More than 40 people are expected to participate. Organizers 
are expecting protesters. The rally will take place the same day as Eugene Springfield Pride in the park. The organizer, Jamie Burnett, said the rally is not protesting Pride, and, he's, and I'm not going to go on further. And while we're talking about rallies, the 17th of August is kind of a D-Day for Portland. The, the far-right folks are saying they're going to have 1,000 men or more joining a protest in Portland. And the Antifa folks are saying that they're going to be there. Interesting that at least as of yesterday, nobody, uh, uh, day before yesterday, nobody had applied for a permit. And the city is saying they're not going to put up with any nonsense this time. Our chief of police has said she wished that neither of them would come. And I have to f agree with that one. And she said to the last time we were shorthanded, this time we're going to have absolutely no Portland policemen off-duty. We're going to have enough to there. And anybody who is violent, we're going to grab them. I hope they do. And I really, really think that we should seriously look at the proposal to ban masks. masks. No masks. If you want to protest, okay, but you can't hide who you are. If there is, and I, and I, and, and I understand the counterargument to that, it was if, if you're truly afraid of being uh, targeted by the government, then doing it in secrecy. But the challenge is, so far, the reason people are, it seems to be concerned about being seen by the government is so that they can break something or break somebody. Exactly. But, uh, but I, I wanted to say something different. Somebody could ask, well, why would they do like a Trump rally in Eugene? Like, Oregon is not likely to be a swing state. You're not going to elect a pro-Trump city councilor or county commissioner in Eugene. Maybe, maybe a Lane County commissioner because Lane County is so big and extends to the coast. Maybe. But you're not, you're not building a foothold in politics in Eugene, Oregon. So why do it? Well, I think there's an obvious answer. And I think that answer is because they're looking for the conflict. Because you're, they're picking a fight. That's what's going on. That when Donald Trump says the stuff he says to be inflammatory, it's to pick a fight because he knows it's the fight. He knows it's the fight that garners the attention. And if you go to Eugene, Oregon, and you know that there are people who say, hey, we've got to, we've got to protect people, we've got to, we've got to counter-protest, that you're more likely to get a fight. When you go to Portland, Oregon, you're more likely to get a fight. And then Ted Cruz can like try to have a fight with Ted Wheeler. And by having that fight, you can gin up the people whose primary purpose of getting engaged in this stuff is not policy solutions. It is not figuring out how the world can be run better, how the country can be managed more skillfully. But the purpose is owning the libs. The purpose itself is the fight. And it can make it seem like there's some sort of balance in the political system. In fact, you're just one side. There's two sides. There's two protesters for two sides. There's not just one general consensus that fascism is, a fascism is a bad idea, one general consensus that climate change should be dealt with, one one supermajority consensus that we probably shouldn't have mass numbers of people getting gunned down in the streets because we have stupid gun laws, because we have almost no gun laws, not because there isn't a general consensus or supermajority agreement that we should have secret money not dominating our politics and make sure, in fact, that we have a democracy that works. But you can sort of make it seem like there's two sides because, well, this person has a bat and this person has a bullhorn, and, well, that sort of seems equivalent. And they're picking the fight. And one of the things why this show exists and why we're so grateful for this radio station to exist is to try to tease this stuff out, to not exist for the fight, but try to exist for solutions, try to exist for democracy. Dad, your turn. We, well, we got just a couple minutes before okay, we, we, we have time a couple for of minutes, then just, just some headlines of the uh, homeless count in Portland. The recent estimate is that there are more than 2,000, but one of the key things, nobody really knows exactly how many homeless there are. 
And, and how do you find out? Some court news. It's quick court news. Judge Henry Breitbauer has ruled that local government personnel do not have to reveal what they write in notes to themselves if they're, if they're local government. And I've got to say that a law that would require somebody to make public his or her notes to themselves, I, I have real trouble with that because I, I ought to be able to write thoughts to myself that I don't have to, to share with other people because the alternative to that is not writing notes. And if I don't write notes, Chinese proverb, one pencil worth 10,000 memories. I don't know if that's actually a Chinese proverb. Well, it just became one. I don't know if you get to decide the Chinese proverbs. I'm getting court, very the court, the court of Appeals has told the Washington County District Attorney that it was not okay to exclude the one black juror that was available. The District Attorney said that he did it because he didn't like unemployed students, and yet he allowed two unemployed white students on the jury and so there's going to be a new trial for a guy who was accused of, of uh, forcing a woman into, into prostitution. Brian Boquist, senator, is suing in federal court against the president of the Senate et al., alleging that his First Amendment rights are being limited because of the restrictions he has to let people know when he's coming to the Capitol. And Joey Gibson, who said, hey, when he was, when people were protesting what he's doing, saying, sue me, and people did sue me, he's asking for a venue change. I'll be interested to see whether or not he gets his venue change. OHSU employees used fake synonym, pseudonyms excuse me, to troll the union on social media. Patrick Frangle, employee at OHSU, Oregon Health and Science University, created two fake Twitter accounts under the names Annis McFadden and Roy Virginia. Frangle then used those accounts to tweet at and about the union and spread false information about union dues. OHSU tweeted to the union this week that Frangle had been removed from the bargaining team. Uh, climate change is likely to transform Pacific Northwest towns in a massive fire hazards, Willamette Week reporting, and also the Willamette reporting that Jeff Barker, candidate who the bus project uh, canvassed for years ago, and it is a pass. The bus project just changed its name to Next Up. That happened just last week. And the... Uh, but the other, the other interesting uh, hallmark of the time, or mark of the time, is that first election when the, the bus was activated, uh, knocked on some number of thousands of doors for Jeff Barker, who ended up winning by, I think, 40 votes. I believe it was 45. And, and ended up being, I thought it was 40 exactly, okay, but anyway. anyway it, was, and, it was 40-something. And ended up being the deciding vote for Jeff Merkley to become not just the minority leader, but in fact, Speaker of the House, and put him in a position to run for the U.S. Senate. And a stitch in time, that little thing, that, that horseshoe nail, that little piece, that little... Uh, turning on a trifle of history is a reminder of the importance of Jeff Barker's election. Jeff Barker, who ended up being to some degree a law and order head of Judiciary Committee, had the honor to serve with him and on his committee. Uh, but thank you to his uh, uh, thank you to his service. Got a text in. Not only the cops protecting Proud Boys and harassing Antifa, Antifa members are being harassed at their homes and masks for protection from cop harassment and right wing harassment. Thank you for the texts. The text line here is 971-220-5979. Dad, it's time for a straw in the wind. Straw in the wind. I have two. Like a straw First, in the wind. 
a local straw in the wind. For many weeks, we've been watching the building at 2020 Northeast Multnomah in Portland, just eight blocks from my house going up, which was supposed to be all condos. And instead of being condos, they have decided it's going to become an apartment house because nobody is buying the condos, which is an interesting straw in the wind. And then nationally, the only black member of the House of Representatives who is a Republican, William Hurd, is not going to run again, which will leave the Republicans pure white. I'm not going to call him pure, <laughs> but I'm going to say lacking entirely in any racial or ethnic diversity. Dad, we did it again. We did it again, and we'll be back on Monday. Love you, Pop. Love you, too. I want to say thanks again to each and every X-Ray member, each and every X-Ray listener. By the way, the words I just said aren't written on the script. They're, in fact, the genuine gratitude that all of us have and all of us need to feel in order for this little thing to exist. We truly couldn't do it without you. We appreciate you every day. We appreciate you every time we do this stuff. We thank also our friends at Tom Dwyer Automotive who are right by the Selwood Bridge who've been helping us since the very beginning. We couldn't do it without Tom Dwyer Automotive. Love you, Tom. Love you, the whole crew. We appreciate you so much. Uh, thank you also to our friends at Morale Link who've also been helping us just about since the very beginning. Uh, so appreciate you. And again, so appreciate our members. We're going to be right back. We're going to be back with Amanda Antonucci. Outside In has been providing a safe, supportive, and inclusive place for healthcare for five decades. They're going to be celebrating National Healthcare Week, not, excuse me, National Health Center Week, with a free community event called Health and Hope. We're going to be talking to Amanda Antonucci right after this. This is X-Ray, and radio is yours.